This episode of Fearless Rebel Radio is brought to you by You On Fire. You On Fire is the amazing 12-week online group coaching program that I run where we build up your worth from the ground up so that it's no longer hinging on the way that you look. It's got personalized coaching from me and incredible community support plus lifetime access. Get details on what's included in this program and sign up to be notified when doors open for the next cycle by going to summerinandin.com forward slash you on fire. I would love to have you in that program and in that group. This is Fearless Rebel Radio, a podcast about body positivity, self-worth, anti-dieting, and feminism. I am your host, Summer Inanin, a professionally trained coach specializing in body image, self-worth, and confidence, and the best-selling author of Body Image Remix. If you're ready to break free of societal standards and stop living behind the number on your scale, then you have come to the right place. Welcome to the show. This is episode 119, and I am interviewing Ashley Bennett, the body image therapist, about why obesity is not the result of personal responsibility, navigating life outside dieting, and the importance of self-compassion in healing. You can find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode at summerinandin.com forward slash 119. Before we begin, let me give a shout out to Maitre Mag, who left this awesome review. Summer's podcast is a must listen. If you are looking for real, honest, body positive talk, Summer is your girl. She is smart, clever, fun, and has great guests. More importantly, she walks her talk and doesn't just go with the crowd for ratings. I never miss an episode. Thank you so much, Matron Meg. I really appreciate that. If you haven't left a review for the show, I would really appreciate it if you took two minutes to do so. It helps others to find the information that you're learning here. You can do that by going to iTunes, search for Fearless Rebel Radio, then click Ratings and Reviews, and click to leave a review or give it a rating. Also, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode via iTunes or whatever platform you use. I would really appreciate that as well. And lastly, grab the free 10-day body confidence makeover at summerinandin.com forward slash freebies with 10 steps to take right now to feel better in your body. And as a reminder, you can always go directly to my website, thebodyimagecoach.com, and you'll find everything there. Today's guest is Ashley Bennett. Ashley Bennett, MAT, is known as the body image therapist. She is a qualified master's trained counseling art therapist with experience in mental health with children, adolescents, and adults. She has specialized research interests in appearance-oriented body image, weight stigma, internalized weight stigma, subclinical disordered eating, body image disturbances, and the impact of these areas on an individual's well-being. She helps those who are on the path of recovery, healing and self-acceptance related to trauma, eating disorders, body dissatisfaction, body dysmorphia, weight stigma, internalized weight stigma, or other mental health challenges. Ashley is amazing. If you don't follow her on Instagram, her handle is at bodyimage-therapist. She has been posting incredible, mind-blowing things and uses a lot of research in her in her posts as well. So definitely follow her there. And I think you're going to love this episode. Check it out. Hi, Ashley. Welcome to the show. Hi, Summer. It's so good to be here. I know. I'm so happy to have you here. I, <laughs> As I was saying before we started recording, I have just been 
eating up all of your Instagram posts. I think you just kind of came on with a fire inside of you with all of these yeah. really important things to say. And you have such a beautiful way of, of saying it and the drawing and research. So I'm really, really excited to have you on the show. Thank you. Yeah, it's really nice to hear feedback from the work that I do. Sometimes it can be very isolating on Instagram. You're just working away. Yes. And it's actually great to hear that the content leaves Instagram and I hear people talking about it with their loved ones and Mm -hmm. it just makes it really worthwhile. Yeah, you're definitely making an impact. So I would love you to start out by telling our listeners a little bit more about how you came to where you are. How did you discover health at every size? How did you discover body positivity and want to help people with this? Well, it's a very long road. (laughs) I feel like a lot of people would say that, but I have a lot of lived experience myself. This was even before I became an art therapist or even remotely interested in psychology or body image or, you know, health in general. It's something that I've managed as an actual human being as well. So I have an eating disorder past and I, yeah, have experienced a lot of those issues. And then I think through that, I just became so fascinated through my own healing journey in psychology and I actually have a fine arts background which a lot of people might not know so I went to art school and I did a lot of exploration about culture and just image you know image in so many different ways and I explored a lot of myself through that so that led me to going into art therapy and learning more about psychology it's just been such a rabbit's warren (laughs) Mm -hmm. of an adventure that, yeah, it's just come to me over time gradually. I remember coming across, I think it was about 10 years ago, the idea of fat acceptance. I met a couple of fat activists, just not through fat activism, it was actually through art. And I was sort of introduced to those concepts. And at the time, I thought it was pretty radical to think like, oh, my body's okay the way it is. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it just sort of planted this seed. It didn't really grow into anything initially. I was so heavily fixed in diet culture and just saw, you know, I had a very narrow view of what health was for my body. Yeah. So it's sort of, it's just, it's come back up in a way that is pretty potent. Yeah. Yeah. How important was it for you to discover health at every size? How did that influence your journey? Well, in a nutshell, it just takes the pressure off a little bit. You know, Mm -hmm. we hear one sort of narrative about what health is. And after a while, you think, what is there more? Because, you, you know, there are so many of us, quote unquote, struggling with trying to become this very narrow idea of health. And of course, you know, I came across Linda Bacon's work and it sort of amplified over Instagram as well and through my own research practice. So at the moment, I'm doing a higher research degree. The health at every size paradigm has become really central to my approach. And Mm -hmm. there's just a lot of really great research out there that validates this work. It's not just a matter of like, oh, yeah, you can be healthy at any size Yeah, there's just a lot of validation out there and we don't hear it about it. That just made me really suspicious. Yeah. So I would love to talk to you about some of that research and just, you know, in particular, some of the stuff that you've posted more recently. So Mm -hmm. 
One of your most recent posts was in reference to a study, and the quote that you pulled was, the assumption that obesity results from personal responsibility is not supported by the data. And I feel like that statement could really rock people's worlds. So definitely, can you talk more about that and, you know, what the data says around that? And then we'll unpack that whole, you know, Mm, bearing the burden of personal responsibility too. Yeah, well, something really important to recognize is that in science, there's not just one voice and there's not just one orientation. So many different areas of study, schools of thought approach the topic of obesity. So they'll approach it from a medical point of view, where it's just literally looking at cells and internal functions. They'll approach it from a psychological view where, oh, you know, obesity is because of trauma and beliefs that maintain particular things. And then you've got the public health perspective, the nutrition perspective. There's just so many voices Mm -hmm. in this particular puzzle. And from that, we hear particular studies come through the media and it always comes back down to the media where basically they will run with a particular point of view. And that point of view is normally to back up the point of view that they already have, which is very fat phobic and that fat is bad and that all fat people are unhealthy. It's very black and white. And so what the science actually says when you look at it from a broader perspective, not just from one perspective, it's multifactorial. So what that means is obesity doesn't have a single cause. It's not, it's not just simply black and white. It's, it has many factors that go into it. And so, yeah, depending on which field of study and your knowledge background, you will fixate on that one particular area. Mm-hmm. So I suppose the long way of saying this, well, the short way of saying this is that what we hear is not the full picture and that science isn't black and white. Right. And it's an unfinished narrative. We don't actually have an answer. And some things don't need answers either. But, you know, this is the nature of inquiry. Yeah. So in terms of personal responsibility, like that really fuels weight stigma and definitely in our yeah. culture. Yeah. Yeah. And that is a cultural thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, we live in a culture and especially a health culture as well, where it is about the individual maintaining sole responsibility for their health. And that's important to a degree, but we forget about all of the factors surrounding us that do support our health. So like public health looks at environmental factors, literally physical factors, access to food, access to quality food and socioeconomic factors. So literally how much money you make, are you employed, are you educated, these things are going to contribute to your overall levels of health, not just talking about body size, as well as political factors as well. It depends on the nature of your government. Like, is it, you know, without getting to politics, because that's not my particular area, but there are just so many factors that maintain that current paradigm of self-responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. And, you know, I think what what happens is that personal responsibility, we start to bear that burden. And I think even being exposed to health at every size messages, I think intellectually, we may understand that, but we've been so conditioned to feel like, you know, our body is our fault, or our size is 
is our fault. And so, you know, what's your advice to people who are trying to, you know, overcome those feelings associated with thinking, you know, that they've contributed to this problem, which is not a problem because society is actually the problem. But how do they, I guess what I'm trying to say is how do they believe, how do they start to really take away this kind of like, okay, like my body is just not really like my body is what it is. Yeah. First, what I want to say is it takes time. And a lot of people hate that, (laughs) that it Mm -hmm. takes time. It's about getting educated as well. So just sitting back and being like, okay, you know, I see all of this information that tells me how what I do is bad and my body is bad and blah, blah, blah. But is this the full picture? You know, what makes this information higher quality than this information? So it's about getting educated and really thinking critically and just asking some deeper questions of yourself, like what makes this information over here more appealing? So diet culture information more appealing. Mm -hmm. And also asking yourself, what is health? We say health a lot, but what is it? And what is it to you? Yes. What is health to you? And what does health look like on you and feel like on you? I think health is such a relative concept you know, my level of health, my level of potential health may be different from, you know, the world will be very different from the person next to me. And who are we to compare health? Right. It just makes me laugh sometimes. Like, let's focus on you. What's healthy for you? Yes. In our current understanding of health, it's so heavily focused on diet and exercise, Mm. which only really accounts for such a small percentage of differences between health and individuals. Definitely. And that's just the maintaining factor of personal responsibility and that in general, a lot of health promotion and health education does put responsibility on the individual because it's, they would have to focus like governments, for example, would have to reevaluate so many of their other policies in order for people to actually improve their environmental conditions to then improve their health. They don't actually believe that it's a part of their responsibility. Mm -hmm. I read this paper the other day that was saying one of the biggest health determinants is poverty. And then the next sentence was, but, you know, is that really within the realm of public health to focus on poverty (laughs) when poverty is a public health issue? Wow. You know? Yeah. It just makes you realize – how very complex it is and how very gray it is. And the information that you're hearing comes from a particular orientation and a particular paradigm to support other paradigms. So it doesn't mean that you should stop listening to the things that you hear and question everything and put a tinfoil cap on your head. But it's just about getting educated and not placing too much of your emphasis on one particular paradigm. Mm Mm-hmm which is really hard. Yes, yes, it is really hard. And so then what would you suggest instead, like to really then come back to just defining health for you? Is that? Yeah, yeah. definitely. Okay. Just start with that and just see what pops up. Again, it sort of relates to the whole diet culture concept and how I wrote a post about life outside of diet culture. And most of the time we get a lot of our information about what health is and what well-being is from diet culture when it's actually probably not the best source to Mm -hmm. be getting that information from. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, the whole 
people feel a lot of safety in listening to people who are external from them and who seemingly have more knowledge than they do. And to suddenly not have an authority to listen to, it can be very, very unsettling for people. That is so true because we've been told we can't trust ourselves, which I think is Mm. one of the hardest things to then cultivate is a level of self-trust and a level of self-advocacy. And that's so hard to do, especially when you've been, you know, indoctrinated in diet culture from maybe a very young age where your self-trust was immediately cut off. Mm, mm. There might not be very much connection to, you know, even hearing the answers that come from your body and just a general lack of trust of your body. Yeah. I suppose I'm stumbling a bit on my words because I just know how complex this is. Yeah. And no, it is. There's no one, one way because there's many reasons why someone might not trust their body and not just because of diet culture in particular, but mm-hmm. it's, yeah, that's probably where psychology comes in a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, self-trust is a huge umbrella of things when it comes to an individual. Um, I I know one of the things we talked about just before we started recording was ethnicity and size and how, you know, that gets left out of the conversation. Do you want to just comment on that a little bit? Yeah. So I have a Finnish background and even though it's not a part of Scandinavia, it's within the Northern European area. It's so there's a lot of snow, it's really cold and bodies that exist up there in that within that ethnicity are naturally a lot bigger so we're taller we're broader we've got bigger heads some of us hold on to more body fat it's you know I've said a lot for many years that my body wasn't really built for Australia but I'm first generation Australian so my body is still on a cellular level expecting to be in this really cold climate in yeah on the other side of the world And so that really helped for me being like, oh, you know, this is actually my body's composition and I'm not a small girl and I never will be and I never have been. And I think, yeah, it's just take a look at, you know, what's your background as well? What ethnicity, what cultural background, not cultural, what ethnic background, yeah, ethnic background, yeah, what ethnic background are you from? And just investigate your people. Mm hmm. Are you naturally smaller? Are you naturally taller? That can really help as well. My husband is Finnish, as I was saying to you. And yeah, he's big and he has a big head and he puts on, you know, puts on weight and muscle like really, really easily. He's just, he's a big guy. Like he could definitely be one of those strong men if he wanted to be. (laughs) He was just born to like pack on muscle. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure our baby's going to be a big baby <laughs> because of yeah, that. So, yeah. <laughs> and I was joking All around. Yeah, I know about how his head is so big and I'm terrified <laughs> of what that's going to do to my cervix. But uh, anyways, we'll save that for another day. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'll survive. <laughs> but yeah, I know. I think that's so important. I, I remember Virgie Tovar talking about that, about how everyone in her family was in a bigger body and she was born that way. And like, mm. it took her a while to be like, actually, that's just how we're supposed to look. Like, that's how we look. And, you know, how that really helped to facilitate acceptance because it's like, oh, yeah, no, we're not all supposed to look the same. Like, we really do look different. Yeah. Yeah. And that's because we don't see a large representation of bodies in the media. So it's easy to feel like we deviate from the norm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Actually, your body 
And it's funny when that really sinks in, you know it's sunk in because you'll probably laugh hysterically for a good 10 minutes <laughs> when that happens. Yeah. <laughs> or you'll cry because sometimes recognizing that means that, you know, you have to let go of all the things that you thought you needed to be to feel okay. Right. There's, yes. a, there's a huge mourning period that comes with that thinking, oh, but really diet culture tells me I can do anything no pain, no gain. I've just got to do it. Mm-hmm. But maybe not. Yeah, just, maybe not. Yeah, there might be a little whispering voice being like, please don't push me through that. Mm-hmm. Don't put me through that again. And it's so worth it to listen to that little voice. Yeah. And that voice gets louder. It becomes more prominent over mm-hmm. time. Yeah. I think one of the biggest self skills that you can cultivate while going through this is learning how to be just more self-aware. So just general things like observing your thoughts and having a mindfulness practice. I know mindfulness is such a, you know, a trendy topic. Everyone talks about it and, you know, it involves meditation. So people think it's a bit woo and they're like, I don't meditate. But really becoming more self-aware and just seeing and observing where these thoughts are coming from will do you so many favors. Yes, I totally agree. That's like so much of what I do when I work with people too. It's just becoming aware of it and starting to identify the narratives and where they've come from and why they're showing up and learning how to, you know, start to change them and respond to them, I guess is a better word. Yeah. 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 So you actually mentioned the post that you wrote about life outside diet culture and it can be terrifying. So Yeah, I would love you to talk about that. What do you observe or why do you think that can be so terrifying for people? The thing is, is because, and you sort of touched on it before, you can be sort of initiated into the world of diet culture from a very, very young age, like pretty much as soon as you start eating solid foods, especially if your caregivers are very, you know, have an active part in that culture. Mm -hmm. And so it feels like, that's all there is to life. It's like a fish in water. They don't really know that they're in water. They just know that this is life. And so once you begin to recognize, and it's great that we've actually been, you know, beginning to define what diet culture is and actually referring to it as an entity. Yes. That really helps people be like, oh, okay, this is what it looks like. And as soon as you become aware of it, you can begin to differentiate from it and place some distance between yourself and it. But the difficulty in doing that is even though it might not have felt great, there's a lot of safety and feelings of containment that come from being part of a culture. So as soon as, you know, it's a part of your identity and even parts of our identity that we don't particularly like, it still gives us a sense of wholeness of security that I exist and I exist because of these reasons And then when all of a sudden you realize that perhaps a lot of your relationship with your body and because many people identify themselves as their body, all of a sudden it's like, who am I? Yes. It's very uncontaining and it can almost feel like drifting out into the ether. There's the sense of grounding has sort of disappeared from your feet. And that's why a lot of people struggle with actually letting go of those constructs within diet culture Mm -hmm. because there's someone there to tell you what to do. Again, it comes back to that body trust 
But it's sort of like if I just listen to this person and if I just do the steps that they tell me, I will feel a sense of self-worth. I will be guaranteed longevity on this planet. There's just a lot of investment in the promises that diet culture, you know, provides. Yeah. Well, it gives us a sense of belonging. And I think it really gives us a sense of safety, even though it's not, <laughs> you know, even, yeah. even though it's not and everything's actually kind of shaky. Yeah. It's a false sense of yeah. safety. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I've observed this and talked about this a bunch with people. It's just how sometimes there can be like that void when we leave it behind mm -hmm. because it can almost give us a sense of purpose or a sense of excitement and a bit of a thrill to be participating in it, especially if, you know, you're you're kind of like jumping from diet to diet and it gives you all that hope. And yeah, yeah. it's very addictive in nature. You know, I've, I've talked about this on the podcast before, but mm -hmm. and I don't know what your thoughts are on that. But I feel like that makes it even harder to break free. Yeah, I love this topic of the void and definition or a term that people might enjoy looking up is this concept called liminal space and what that is is it's sort of like limbo land where you're not really in diet culture anymore or you're not really in the thing that you identified with but you're not really somewhere else you're mm -hmm. sort of just drifting in the middle in the nothingness and in the void and that can be very unsettling it's the fear of the unknown but the good news is is that in that nothingness and in that void, that's where things grow and that's where, you know, you can hear those little voices in your head that might be your wise self or a deeper part of yourself coming through that you might not have looked at for a long time. So it's it's just allowing that space to be and just trusting. Yeah, I've never heard that expression before. So I'm definitely going to Google that and I'll link it in the show notes because that's exactly yeah. what it is. Yeah, you said it like it's the fear of uncertainty, I think, which is mm -hmm. is the hardest thing for people to be with is that that, un yeah. you know, just sitting with uncertainty is so uncomfortable. Yeah, it's because you can actually hear yourself. Yes. Yeah. And sometimes for the first time. Yeah. And that might Yeah, can be unsettling. So I would love to shift gears here and talk to you about self-compassion because you write about this a lot and I would yeah. love to know, you know, the importance of self-compassion and healing. Definitely. Yeah. So one of the posts I wrote about, so I love self-compassion and for myself, I find it, you know, instrumental and in my work with my own clients. But I also want to look at the this is something I do with a lot of things, the opposite side and the darker side of self-compassion and how a lot of people can find it really difficult mm. to actually do. And it feels very unnatural and like, I don't want to be nice to myself. And there's just a lot of misconceptions of what self-compassion is. Yeah. So I suppose the point I want to make is it's okay if you find it difficult to have compassion towards yourself it might be something that you, you know, you investigate a little bit more further down the road of healing because sometimes the body and your emotions and your inner child and your inner self might think, oh, you're just going to use self-compassion to invalidate my feelings, like just to say, oh, it's all good and, you know, you should get over that and blah, 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 when that's not actually what it is. Right. But when you're in a place of, you know, you haven't unpacked much in your life concerning 
you know, your deeper emotional feelings and if you've had trauma. Self-compassion can be difficult to give yourself because you haven't had an example of that either. You may not have had an example of what that looks like. And so it can be sort of asking someone to imagine a color they've never seen. Yeah. Yeah. But that's so yeah. important. I don't think I got talked about it very much, but I've, yeah, mm. that's so true. And so in that case, you know, how do you suggest approaching it? Mm, I think, well, I would suggest if you've got a lot of stuff going on, it's being okay with asking for help and reaching out and working with someone to begin untangling your feelings. I suppose, I suppose just coming into it with an open mind and even asking yourself the question of what thoughts do I have and how does it feel to even consider giving myself compassion? You know, just what am I actually saying about it in my mind? What do I think self-compassion is going to do or not do? Again, it's that self-inquiry stuff that we all sort of wish we didn't have to do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it, there's no harm at all in learning about self-compassion. And I know you had Kristen Neff on your podcast mm -hmm. earlier, and she has so much great content about this and she busts a lot of myths about what it is. And so even if you just start learning about it, you don't particularly have to implement it right away. It's just go slow. Yeah, I think that that's so important for people. And, you know, I, Kristen Neff's work is amazing on it, obviously. I'm curious to know for in terms of your perspective, like what's one of the biggest misconceptions that you encounter or that you think it's important for people to watch out for? In terms of self-compassion? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. If you think that self-compassion just means I'm going to give up on myself and I'm not going to have goals for myself and or aims and basically that I'll just give up if I'm compassionate to myself because people believe that they need to be motivated through criticism and shame and that without those things, why would I do anything? Mm -hmm. That's the biggest misconception. Yeah. What's your response to that when someone says something like that to you? Uh, I do. I validate it where they're coming from, but I do also talk about how we're very used to in society hearing shame-based tactics. It's, you know, I'll bribe someone to do something or there has just this sort of sinister undertone of why you would need to do something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a tricky one. Yeah. 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 It's just, it's a really tricky one because it really depends on who the person is. But I suppose for me, when I first encountered self-compassion, maybe I'll give you an example of myself. Yeah. When I first discovered compassion, just in general, and a very wise woman taught me about compassion, I thought, oh, yeah, compassion, yeah, be nice to yourself, but, like, I get it, blah, blah, blah. But it didn't seem good enough for me. Mm. And, yeah, it wasn't until I began really reflecting on my, you know, why was I having this reaction? And I realized I didn't actually know compassionate language. I didn't know what that even sounded like. And so it took a while and I actually did it through a lot of letter writing to myself where I would respond to a situation in my past through a letter and I would write it down the best way that I knew how. And then I would look back on it and just try and notice the words that, you know, might be a bit judgmental, where inner critic might be coming through. And just seeing if I can replace those words or those sentences with 
a sentence that sounds more compassionate. And that's the thing. Everyone's going to have their own version of compassionate language. Yeah. I think it's once you begin to differentiate between your inner critic and your wise inner self that you begin to notice what the compassionate language is because it's pretty much the language that the inner critic doesn't use. Yeah, exactly. And I think we're all pretty good at identifying our inner critic because we feel shit after we've had an encounter with it. Yeah. I always say it is like learning a new language, self-compassion, or like flexing a muscle in your body that you've never used before. So it Mm. feels really awkward and forced and for a lot of people, you know, some people I think it comes easier, but it's like trying to find something that you haven't tapped into before and then being really intentional about trying to work it and flex it to strengthen it because it doesn't just turn on. Definitely. Yeah. And there are so many, it's very much connected to mindfulness meditation as well. And just becoming more aware of the way your mind operates. And, you know, personally, I really love YouTube. There are so many great resources on YouTube for meditations and self-compassion. And I think for some people that can be a really rich resource to tap into, Mm -hmm. to learn a new language. Because sometimes we live in environments that you know, we might still be in that environment that is still very disruptive and negative and, you know, it's not in our best interest to be in it. And we can't just jump out of that environment and go and hang out with people who love singing and picking flowers. It's like seeking out that new language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it might be on the internet that you do that. And through Instagram, I think that's why our community online, you know, has such momentum. Yeah. Oh, what a much needed space. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I was gonna say before when you were talking about, you know, kind of like shame based tactics for motivating change, like I was gonna say that's really the essence of the way of weight loss marketing. And the weight loss industry is shame based. It's entirely shame based. Yeah, yeah. But it's shown to be ineffective on a scientific level. So even if you have success through shame based tactics, it's like at what expense? Yeah. At what expense and for how long is that going to last? Yeah, exactly. It's like, would you rather find another way to motivate yourself to do something that is actually going to bolster your self-worth at the same time or something that is going to slowly chip away at it in conjunction (laughs) with maybe getting some kind of short-term change? That's the way I always think about it too. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about the word fat because originally your handle was the fat therapist and then I know know you recently changed it. So how important was it for you to reclaim that word and to use that word? So important. So I initially, when I jumped on Instagram for the first time, main motivator was I wanted to talk about health professionals that existed in fat bodies Mm. and how some people might find that really bizarre like how can you be a health professional and be fat because like I can't take advice from you or I can't listen to you as like a role model because you clearly haven't fixed yourself and so I wanted to be really upfront with my position and I wanted my name to really get people asking questions Mm -hmm. but yeah in terms of reclaiming fat for myself in doing that it became less of a trigger so when I would hear fat out in the world, I wouldn't immediately feel that wash of shame. Like I'm a bad person. And, and that, you know, shame triggers a lot of other physiological and psychological processes within your body. And it can be one of those vicious circles 
yeah. So as soon as I did that, it took a while, but now I can say fat without freaking out. Yeah. Which is great. But it's basically about bringing it back to that benign descriptor of a body. You know, we all have fat. We all have another word for fat is adipose tissue. That's the scientific name for it. Mm -hmm. So you could call yourself adipose if you want. Yes. But it's essentially just bringing it back to a neutral description. And in reclaiming that, that word can no longer have effect, an effect on you or as much of an effect. Yes. So how do you suggest that as, as a good step for people who obviously would self-identify as being in a larger body? Is that something that you encourage people to do? Yeah. I mean, it depends on where they're at, but if there's a lot of trauma surrounding the word fat, I won't encourage people to take that word back straight away. One of the things that we do first is really unpack the trauma surrounding the word and, you know, teaching some self-regulation skills and, just some inner coping skills. And then eventually it's like, it's sort of like a gradual exposure to the word fat. Mm -hmm. And eventually, you know, it's saying that word out loud. A lot of people I encounter have a lot of difficult with even saying the word. Yes. And it's like, I can't say it because yeah. So it's very much a process, but it can be really helpful for people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And for me, like I don't, I'm in, you know, like I'm in a straight size body, so I don't obviously identify that way, but that word held so much shame for me because I was bullied so much with that word when I was a kid. Mm, yeah. And so for me, my process was about neutralizing it. And mm. so not in a self-identification process, but just using it in my own head just as like, okay, like fat is just fat. Like it's just fat. And then obviously doing work around, you know, looking at larger bodies and challenging all the internalized fat phobic beliefs that I had. But so I just wanted to pop that in there for people who maybe don't identify as being who aren't in a larger body, but I still think there's a process to neutralize that word that really does support a more positive body image. Yeah, definitely. Because that's the thing. Fat phobia doesn't just affect people in bigger bodies, it affects every single body that is conditioned to believe that fat is bad. Mm -hmm. And it it doesn't mean that, you know, we talk about pain and those people who actually live in in bigger bodies experience more pain and you can't compare it to those who are just afraid of fat or feeling fat when they're in a thin body. But it's just important to recognize that on an individual level, like your experience of fat is very relative to you. Mm -hmm. And that just, that shouldn't minimize how you feel about it. But it's just important to note where your privilege lies as well. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that. Because yeah, I think some people can misconstrue that message as being, oh, well, you know, my feelings aren't valid, or I shouldn't have these feelings instead of, you know, like, you know, the way you feel is the way you feel. Yeah. Yeah, it's that again, comes back to I like the term living in the gray. So it's not one way or the other way. It's not black or white. Everything exists in layers and it's important to approach the layers for what they are and being okay with them coexisting. Mm -hmm. Even if they seemingly contradict one another, that's really, uh, that's abstract thinking for you. But you know what? So I love that you said that. I that's one of my favorite thing. Like I have that on a on a meme from like way way back. It's like live in the gray. Yeah. <laughs> that's like a, like I live by that mantra. That's been yeah yeah so yeah. helpful. And not exactly in the same way that you described it there, but just 
you know, using that to overcome like just black and white and all or nothing. And, you know, recognizing that two things, yeah. two polarizing things can coexist together. Like you can be sad and you can be grateful at the same time kind of thing. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's yeah, cool. Such a huge topic. I feel like we've touched on so many massive topics. I feel like today. I could talk to you forever, though. Like, I feel like you have <laughs> yeah. so we have just have so many thoughts in common or, or just, you know, like, the way yeah. that we think about things. And yeah, oh, you should try being in my head. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would be pretty cool. Actually, I feel like you get yeah, I feel like you might get a lot deeper than I do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm so grateful that I have Instagram now. Yeah. Actually focus my thoughts down into something and I'm not just on my phone at 3am like writing these giant monologues <laughs> waiting for a book deal one day <laughs> oh I hope you got one well so you know we have, we have to wrap things up here but I'd love you to tell people where they can find more of you how they can work with you what do you have yeah so I'm primarily on Instagram at body image underscore therapist and I also have a website which is on my Instagram as well but I do online counseling, so I work internationally with people and I specifically look at body image and internalized fat phobia and just untangling some of those deeper issues that might be maintaining those factors. And a lot of the time it doesn't have anything really to do with your body. Mm -hmm. So I think some people can be a bit surprised when they start working with me and I'm like, oh, maybe we shouldn't talk about your body. Yes. Like, what? I thought that was my problem. Yes. Yes. I told. Oh, yeah. Again, like, yeah. yeah, I'm just so on the same page with everything you're talking yeah. about. So good. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, every, I hope everyone goes to check you out. I will link to your website and your Instagram in the show notes for this episode. And yeah, I can't wait to hear more about what you're writing and what you're up to. And I just think you're going to make a huge impact in this space and in this world. So I'm just really grateful that thank you so much. You took the time to be here today. Thank you so much, Ashley. Thank you, Summer. Rock on. I feel like Ashley and I could have gone on and on. We have so many things in common in terms of the way we approach things when we work with people. And uh, she was just such a pleasure to chat to. And we covered so many topics. So this was a great episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And thank you so much for listening. I will see you next time. Rock on. I'm Summer Inanin, and I want to thank you for listening today. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Summer Inanin. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this show. I would be so grateful. Until next time, rock on. Rock on.